0: Can you imagine life without mirrors? Just think about it for a second. Imagine your life without having mirrors. You don't have a mirror in your bathroom to get ready with. You don't have mirrors in your car so you can see what's behind you. Think about all the things that require mirrors to work uh, cameras, telescopes. Can you imagine your life without mirrors? Modern mirrors, at least as we have them today, they were invented about 170 years. Our modern mirrors. He, he took Justice von Liebig. He was a German, and he he invented our modern mirrors. He he took glass and silver and vacuums and all kinds of science. You know, gypsy magic. I don't get it, but here's the important part. Um, he made them accurate, clear, and inexpensive, because before this mirrors, they were dim. They weren't very accurate, and they were incredibly expensive. They were the luxury items of the ancient world. If you look on the screen, we've got a picture of an ancient Egyptian mirror. And you can tell just looking at it, it wasn't a high-quality device. All the way back in Genesis 1, we learned that God made us in his image. In the image of verse 27, Genesis one says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, He created them. God made us to be images of himself. He made us to be mirrors of him, reflecting his love, his justice, and his mercy into the world. And then he did this. He said, hey, not only do I want you to be mirrors, I want you to have lots of kids. I want you to fill the world. I want you to fill the world with mirrors of me. He wanted to make the world like it is today, full of mirrors. But as the story continues, Humanity rebels against him. They, they reject his plan. And as a result, that choice, it shattered us. distorted, me- weak, dim, inaccurate, unclear, distorted mirrors of God. As we've gone through the book of Ephesians, this is what we've learned. We've seen that Jesus, by his sacrificial death and resurrection, restores us back to being clear and bright mirrors of God. And so Paul in Ephesians 5, he picks up on this idea of mirroring. In Ephesians 5, 1, he writes this. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. In other words, mirror God, reflect him into the world as beloved children. And then he goes on to to say this. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, afraid to be mirrors of Jesus, sacrifice to God. So he's saying, look, you need to be mirrors of Jesus, just like he sacrificed himself as a fragrant offering. To God, you need to sacrifice yourself to, before others. You need to reflect his sacrificial love into the world. And we've got to think about this for a second, because this is actually really incredible. We've got to let it soak in, because it's easy to forget. God took us when we were dim, broken, and inaccurate reflections of him. He took us in our worst position. And then he made us into renewed mirrors so that we were able to reflect the most well-lived, most holy, most important person in human history, Jesus Christ. That's incredible. It's that calling. We get to reflect Jesus into the world. Can you believe that? Let me ask for a second. How's that going? When people look at me, When people look at you, when they look at us, do they get a clear reflection of Jesus? Or is the truth that they're getting carnival mirrors of Jesus? Like the one we got up there, right? We've all experienced the carnival mirror, right? They're a lot of fun because they kind of distort what you look like. You know, they give you big torsos or or whatever. But Here's the deal. Um, You wouldn't want one of those in your bathroom unless it made you look skinny. But other than that, of Jesus, but your bathroom, right? Paul is calling us to be a reflection of Jesus, but the question is, how is it going for us? Are we faithful imitators of Jesus? Or is the truth that we're carnival mirrors of Jesus, distorting his picture to the world? Think about it this way. If someone followed you for an entire week with a camera, they're doing a documentary on your life, and they got every moment, every moment in public, every moment in private, every moment in the light, every moment in the dark, if they followed you for an entire week through that camera, would they get a clear picture of who Jesus really is? How do our lives distort Jesus? In Ephesians 5, as Paul goes on, he's going to address what he saw as one of the greatest threats to the Ephesian church's calling to reflect Jesus in the world, sexual immorality. So he continues, he says this, verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity Or of greed. And and by greed here, he's actually talking about a greediness for more sexual experiences. More uh, sexual desires. He says, because these are improper for God's holy holy people. Immorality. It is threats to our ability to reflect Jesus, to mirror Jesus into the world as sexual immorality. Now, I realize this probably right about now. There's some of you who are already checking out. Because maybe this is kind of exactly what you expect to hear at a campus ministry, right? Some anti-sex, anti-sexuality kind of prudish message. So I want to be clear on something before we go forward. The the Bible is profoundly pro-sex. The Bible is profoundly pro-sexuality. We know this because God is the one who made sex and he made sex good. Inside of our Bibles, we have a book called The Song of Solomon. That's really a sex manual. Sex is affirmed in the anti-sex. Okay? So you got to hear this: we are not a prudish anti-sex, anti-sexuality ministry, but but we are sane people. We are sane, right? We know that good things, the best things, they can be abused and distorted, right? Sugar's sweet, but if all you eat is sugar, you're going to get sick. Exercise is a powerful way to get healthy, right? But if you overexercise, if you don't rest, you're going to destroy your body. Sex is both sweeter than sugar. It's more powerful than exercise. And because it's one of the most powerful experiences that we can have in this world, any imaginable that God doesn't give in to our insane cultural perspective that says, really, any imaginable expression of sex, as long as both people agree, any imaginable expression of sex is okay. No, God elevates the goodness and the power of sex so high, so high that he he sanely limits it to only the most committed and powerful human relationship, a husband and a wife. You see, outside of that deep, total, lifelong, life commitment of marriage, outside of that, sex is utterly destructive. Nuclear fission, splitting the atom. The same is true of sex. power cities through nuclear power plants, or it can level cities. The same is true of sex. Sex can power the marriage relationship, but outside of marriage, it levels us. So when Paul speaks of sexual immorality here, he's not talking about sex in general. He's talking about sex outside of marriage. He's describing a distortion of sex and sexuality. He's describing a carnival mirror version of sex and sexuality. For Paul, then sexual immorality is anything with a hint of sexuality outside of sex. It says anything with a hint, sexual fantasies to touch some touch fee Touching uh, someone in a place that only a husband should touch. Some Touching someone in a way that only a, a wife should touch. Emulating sex with our clothes on. Stirring up lust between brothers and sisters. These are the kinds of things that Paul is talking about with sexual immorality. He's not even talking about sexual desire. Sexual desires are a good thing. God wired us to have sexual desires. What's sexually immoral is when... We don't just have the sexual desire go through the head, go 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 through our head. It it stops like a bird, and it starts making a nest, starts building its place up in there. Sexual immorality is when those desires we start acting on them with our heart. Paul was writing to mind with our hands. Paul was writing to Ephesus, and Ephesus was a city. That was being leveled by sexual immorality. At this time, this is what you need to know. Men were regularly encouraged, even by the most conservative of conservatives, to use prostitutes. Especially in worship, for pagan worship. Prostitutes were the best for that, okay? And, on top of that, Roman men would often take boy-child lovers. That was a normal practice at the time. Roman women, on the other hand, were encouraged to have kind of secret lovers behind the scenes. That's the world that Paul is talking to, a world where from their youth they were experiencing a lifetime of sexual distortions. And Paul knew that that wasn't going to be just easily a hard warning. He says this and it turned off. So he starts with a really stern warning. This is a hard warning. He says this in verse 5, for of this you can be sure. This is tough stuff. No sexually immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, none of those people has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words that, no, those kinds of people can inherit the kingdom. Because of such things, God's wrath is coming upon the disobedient. Paul's warning here really can't be more stern. He's saying, look, we can only mirror Jesus when God is at the center of our hearts and at the center of gratification. But when we're practicing sexual immorality, We're putting self-gratification at the center of our hearts, at the center of our worship. That's why he calls it idolatry. He says, you are an idolater. This kind of sexual self-gratification, it just, it doesn't have a place in the kingdom of God. He's saying, you can have your sexual immorality, you can have your distortions of sex, you can have those, but you're also going to have God's wrath in the end. I want you to remember this. Paul Who's he writing to? He's writing to people who had experienced sexual immorality and distortions from their youth, from their childhood. So here's what he's not saying. He's not saying if you've ever been sexually immoral, then the kingdom of God is He's not saying if you're struggling, that at all. He's talking to people who probably the most of them have been sexually immoral. He's also not saying if you're struggling against, if you're fighting sexual immorality, then the kingdom of God is not for you. That's not what he's saying. This is what he's saying. He's saying if you aren't, fighting against sexual immorality in your life if you aren't violently fighting against it in your life you will lose your life period and here's the reality all of us here at least most of us here we, we do have to fight because our lives everybody here we've all been leveled by one of the most sexually distorted cultures in all of human history I'm just going to speak for myself. I was in fourth grade the first time. It's weird for me to talk about, but I'll, I'll be as honest and open as I can. I, personally, I was in fourth grade the first time someone showed me pornography. Statistics now, by the way, about six or seven is becoming the average. Um, porn, you know, it, it became an addiction in high school like, like for me and for a lot of guys. And, and by the time I was getting out of high school, you know, the sexual pursuit, that was basically what I was all about. And I didn't know any different because that's what I saw every other guy doing. And all of this, it damaged me profoundly before I even came to college. And so when I got to college and I became a Christian, the battle against sexual immorality, it wasn't just going to be over overnight. It wasn't just going to change overnight. All of you in this room who have, so I want to say this to all of you in this room who have experienced sexual immorality in the past, who are struggling with it right now, whether you've been a Christian your whole life or you've just become a Christian in the last year, I know how you feel in this moment when you hear that warning. I know how I felt when I was in college, like sexual sin was gravity. Like no matter how hard I pushed away, no matter what I tried to do, I felt like I kept falling towards it. You begin to feel so ashamed over time that you want to hide it, you want to deny it. Finally, you just want to give in to it. So when you hear these warnings into this, I've got in your heart, you're already despairing. Or you're just saying, I I can't listen to this. I've got to shut down because I can't handle this. So I want you to hear this. As someone who has struggled deeply with sexual sin in my own life, no matter how bad it is for you, the Bible's message is not one ultimately of judgment. It's one of hope. It's one of hope. Believe me, I promise you, you can change. And Jesus is the only one who can change you. I've seen it happen. Jesus is your only hope. And thankfully, Paul, he doesn't just warn us about the dangers of sexual immorality. He then tells us the secret to defeating it, to destroying it. That secret comes in verse 8. He says this, for you were once darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. So you gotta notice what Paul is saying to people who are struggling with sexual immorality. You expect them to say, you people struggling, you are darkness. That's not what he says. He says to people precisely who are struggling with sexual immorality, you are light. How is that even possible? How does it even make sense? To figure it out, we gotta go to the next three words. He says, you are light in the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to be in the Lord? Well, it means to trust the Lord with our whole lives and as a result to be. When Paul says definition, Austin talked about that last night. And so when Paul says definitively, you are light in the Lord. When he says that definitively. He's saying that despite whatever sins you have struggled with in your life, despite whatever sexual sin is in your past, deep down, the deepest you, the truest you is the you who Jesus made. That's the real you. The real you is the one that Jesus made into a new creation. The real you is not the person who's watching pornography, who's giving in to sexual immorality. That's not you. The real you is light in the Lord. That's you. So do you want to know the secret, the transformation? It's not to change who you are. It's to be who you are. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, Don't be who you were, that was darkness. Be who you are, you are light in the Lord. But then the immediate question we ask is, okay, if that's true, if I'm light in the Lord, then why am I still struggling? Why does this still keep happening? Here's the answer. It's Because it's not automatic. It's a process that happens over time. It's a process that we actually have to participate in. We have to work at. It doesn't just happen like that. Go back to verse eight. Paul doesn't merely say, you are light in the Lord. He follows it up by saying and calling them to work. He says, walk as children of the light. We never earn God's children of the light. Let me be clear. We never earn God's love by doing this work, but precisely because he loves us, precisely because he's changed us, we're able to do the hard work of walking as children of the light. By God's strength, by God's, grace and his spiritual power we are working out our faith it's a process it's not automatic it's not going to happen overnight overnight and it's going to take your whole being to do it it's going to take your whole mind your whole heart your hands it's going to take everything to fight against this in other words to be who you are you're like why do i keep struggling well, to be who you are you have to start acting no surprise that in the rest, who you are you have to start acting like who you are And so it's no surprise that in the rest of Ephesians 5, Paul gives 16 different commands, 16 different practical steps that we can take to start acting out of who we are, to continue the process of becoming who we are. I don't have time to do all 16, and you guys don't want to listen to all 16. So I'm just going to hit six. We're going to look at just six practical steps you can take to start fighting sexual immorality in your life. And this is the first one. The first way to be who you are in Jesus is to make an honest self-assessment. Verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So literally, the Greek here says, watch or observe. Uh, When I was in, or we could say it in English like this, watch your step. Watch your step. Uh, When I was in high school, we had senior superlatives. Did everybody else have senior superlatives? Getting some nods? Okay, good. I won the most clumsy person in high school. That was my... That was my moniker. That's how I will be remembered at Oak Park High. But only like 20 people won things. So, you know, I, at least I was in the top 20, I guess. I was the most clumsy person at Oak Park High School. And here's, here's why I'm clumsy. It's because I make bad, I make poor self-assessments. I forget how lanky I am. I mean, I've got long arms, long legs. I forget how kind of uncoordinated I am. And as a result, because I make a poor self-assessment, I end up tripping and falling over. Okay? Most of us are spiritually uncoordinated. Making an honest self-assessment means being honest with yourself about the things that maybe you struggle with that that person doesn't struggle with. Making an honest assessment of how maybe you struggle in this way, but that person doesn't struggle that way. It's making an honest self-assessment of what you need to do practically in your life. So I'm just gonna throw out a few ways you can start making honest self-assessments. Maybe you've been struggling with, with hooking up, okay? Okay. Well, can you make an honest self-assessment and ask what are the environments, what are the places that lead to that hooking up? Maybe it's going to the bars. Maybe it's Tinder. Maybe it's Netflix and chill. One of those it is. I know what that means. I heard about it. Um, (laughs) I don't know which one of those it is. But can you make an honest self-assessment for a second? If you're struggling with hooking up because of those things, then maybe you need to say no. Maybe you need to delete that app. Maybe for you, going to the bars isn't a good choice. Maybe for you, you know, you know I don't go to a guy or a girl's apartment with just the two of us. I, you've got to make an honest self-assessment. If it leads you in that direction, you say, no, I'm not going there. It's done. Or maybe you have a pornography problem. So let me ask you this. Can you make an honest self-assessment? When you watch TV shows that have nudity, graphic nudity, movies with nudity porn that night, can you make an honest self-assessment and ask, does that actually lead me to end up looking at porn that night, the next day, later that week? If it does, then maybe you just have to make a rule. I don't watch TV shows that have nudity. Yeah, I'm sorry, you can't watch Game of Thrones. That's hard, but you're gonna have a pure life. I promise you, Game of Thrones is not as good as having a pure life. You gotta make an honest self-assessment for you. Uh, maybe, Maybe it's just in your relationship. Maybe you're finding that you're, you're having sex with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Make an honest self-assessment. Can you guys just turn the time backwards and just stop having sex? If you can't, notice you're just pushing the boundary. Break up because you have to choose purity. Or maybe you're making out all the time and you notice you're just pushing the boundary one step further and further and further. Maybe the honest self, self-assessment self is saying, for us, making out has to be off limits because we can't stop. We can't, we can't stop ourselves from going too far. I want to speak in particular for a second to girls because I I don't know why, but for whatever reason, in the last six years of college ministry experience, I've had a lot of guys try to do this with girlfriends and their girlfriends refuse. Stop. Listen to them. Guys, exact opposite if that's what's happening with you. Stop. Listen to her. That's the first thing you can do to be who you are, make an honest self-assessment. Number two, to be, make the most, start making God-centered decisions. Verses 16 and 17, make the most of every opportunity. Why? Well, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So Paul's challenge here is to say, take every moment in your life, every decision in your life, and ask this question, what's the Lord's will? So maybe rather than asking the question, how far can we go and not cross the the sexual immorality line, maybe the question becomes, how far does the perfectly holy and pure Lord Jesus want me to go? How far does he want me to go? That's how far I'll go. That's a God-centered decision. Or maybe you've been pushing back your accountability report to a friend on your computer, on your phone, that can filter your internet or that can send an accountability report to a friend. And the reason why is because it's inconvenient, it's embarrassing. A God-centered decision is saying, I'll take inconvenience, I'll take embarrassment, I'll take it, because what I really want is purity. I'm just going to say this, if you're struggling with pornography, one of the singular best things you can do is download a program like Covenant Eyes, Covenant Eyes or X Church. Get it on your phone, get it on your laptop. Guys, girls, do it. Get it on your, it's one of the best decisions you will ever make. It's like putting, think about making a god It won't totally solve your problems, but it's a huge step you can take. Please, think about making a God-centered decision on this one for you, if this is something that you're really deeply struggling with. Number three, to be who you are, you've got to starve yourself of sexual immorality. Verse 11 He says, have nothing to do with fruitless deeds of darkness. Starve them out, but rather expose them. One of the best pieces of advice I ever heard a professor give at Covenant, at my seminary, about the issue of sexual immorality was this. He said, starve it. Starve your eyes of anything that is sexually impure. Starve your heart of anything that is sexually impure. Starve your mind of anything. You might not realize this. Sexually impure. And this actually makes a lot of sense with brain science, by the way. You might not realize this, but every time you give in to a sexual to, to a lustful thought, you, it, it's like it's like marching. A, if you ever if you ever want to make like a trail in the woods, do you know what you do? You walk down the trail back and forth, back and forth, and the more you walk on it, the deeper the trail gets, and the more permanent it gets. That's exactly what happens in your brain every time you lust. That trail becomes more and more and more well trod, more and more permanent, and it becomes. More and more hard to stop taking it. The first time you try to starve sexual immorality in your heart, you're going to be cutting a. It'll be really hard. It's going to be like your bushwhacking. It's it's going to be tough going. Okay. But the more and more you say no, the more and more you starve, the more and more that trail becomes well trod. You can take it. The old trail starts getting overgrown, and it becomes less appealing to you over time. Starve it out, even. The most minor things, whether it's just a, a lustful glance at someone's body, a lustful word about how they look, those are the, maybe the most critical things to starve out. Starve them out. And Paul says another great way to starve them out is to expose them. By exposing them, he means confessing them. So let me just ask this. If you're struggling with sexual immorality, and that's why if you who you are consistently, regularly confessing your struggle to, and not just confessing the big stuff, like I, I looked at porn I me and my girlfriend did this, the small stuff down to the, I, I stared at that girl for too long. Do you have someone who you can confess with on a regular basis? If you don't, I'm going to encourage you to find that person. I'm going to give you a bizarre suggestion here. If this is a big struggle, you might need to find someone who you can share with, but they're not going to share their struggle with you. They might be struggling, but they're not going to share it with you. And here's why. What happens is sometimes when two people start sharing their struggles, they start kind of embracing the fact that they're both messing up and it's not a big deal. So there might actually be some wisdom in finding someone maybe can encourage you and walk. Or maybe it's just a friend who you can confess to who maybe doesn't confess back, but can encourage you and walk alongside you. Number four, you can't just starve it out. You've got to actively fill yourself up with the Spirit. Think about it like this. It's like grass and weeds, okay? I've got a lawn in front of my house, like most houses, unless you're in Arizona. And I'm pretty diligent about ripping up weeds whenever I find them. If I see them, I'll rip them right up. But here's the problem. The weeds keep on growing. It doesn't matter how many times I rip them up, they just come right back out. So I was talking to a friend who's good with lawn stuff. And he told me the secret to killing weeds, you you do have to rip them up, you have to starve them out, but you have to grow a strong lawn back up to be so strong, so interconnected that they literally choke out the weeds from growing back up. That's exactly what we've gotta do. It's not enough just to starve out the lust. We have to do that, but we have to fill ourselves up with something new. Grow a network of God's spirit so strong that lust can't grow up. Paul puts it like this. He says, be filled with the spirit. Get that strong network. Fill yourself up with it. By speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the spirit, Sing and make music from your heart to God. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You might not realize it, but singing is a great way to kill lust. It is. Instead of having images of naked women, he's sin in your head. Have Jesus songs in your head. That—that's what Paul's saying here. I know it sounds weird, but he's, saying, he's sing the songs to yourself, and don't just do that. If you're struggling using your body in sexually immoral ways, put your body in places where people will pray for you and they will sing spiritual songs to you and they will walk beside you as friends and study the word with you. Cultivate practices of scripture reading and prayer in your life. This is what you have to do to develop a network that can choke out lust. Number five, to be who you are. You have to change your language about sex. Paul says this Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse, dirty joking, which are out of place, but rather ridiculous. So I'm just going to admit on this one. I feel a little bit ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous teaching on this, because this is an area that, if I'm going to be honest, I, I think I fall short in. Um, and that I personally struggle with. And in fact, as I was reading through these verses, I was really deeply challenged, because here's what I think Paul's getting at. When you make dirty jokes, whether it's just with the guys or with girls or with both, when you make dirty jokes, you blunt the severity of sexual sin. You minimize the gravity of sexual sin, and as a result, you slowly open up, because it doesn't seem like a big deal, because you're joking about it, you slowly open up the door to sexual immorality. You might say, well, I'm not struggling with it, Instead of opening up the door for a friend who is, instead of having coarse joking be what characterizes our words, Paul says, let it be thanksgiving. When the dirty jokes are going, it might feel weird and you might look a little weird, but maybe the right response is to say, what's something that I can say? positive in this situation? What's something I can give thanks for? What's something I can encourage this person who I'm talking to? If you want to tell jokes, tell self-deprecating jokes. Try, try to change the conversation. But Paul's point seems to be, everybody's laughing. I don't want to make fun of myself. That's the best. Just make fun of yourself. That's a good thing to do if you can't laugh yourself. But here's, here's the deal. Instead, thanksgiving. Learn how to, this is my in that direction. Finally, number six. This is my final and maybe my biggest appeal to you because it's not talked about enough in Christian circles. We think about this battle against sexual immorality as something that we do by ourselves or maybe with one other or two other friends. View this as a group project. View fighting sexual immorality as a group project. I started a freshman small group five years ago. They've all graduated now. But on the first meeting we had, I said this to them. I said, you might not realize it, But my purity will affect your purity. We kind of get that, right? Like leaders are going to affect the people they're leading. We kind of agree with that. But then I turned around and said, but also I want you to know this. Every guy in this room is going to affect my purity. And your purity is going to affect the purity of every guy in this room. We are now interconnected. We don't know each other. It's our first meeting. But from this point forward, we are interconnected. You might not know everybody in this room. But we are interconnected. I say this because it's clearly what Paul teaches, but I also say it because I've seen this happen in my own life in a negative way. When I was in college, my junior year, I had a friend named Jane. That's not her real name. Um, This is enough years ago that I I don't think I would be revealing anything about who she was. Jane was kind of like the it girl amongst all the Christians, okay? Okay. She was a rock star intern, so then a ministry. She was serving in multiple ministries. She led a high school small group. She was a ministry intern, so then a ministry house. She was the one, if anybody had their life together, Jane. Jane had her life together. But around our junior year of college, our Christian community just kind of started to implode around us. People were getting sucked into the party scene. They were starting to hook up with each other. And it seemed like, just about everyone slowly over time was more and more in their lives giving into sexual immorality, sexual sin. And so Jane, she ended up meeting this really charming guy. I actually really liked him. He was a fun guy to be around. And this guy, he, wanted, he convinced her to have sex with Jane. And I don't know how he did it, but he convinced her to. He convinced her to have sex with him. And I remember when all this was happening and people were talking about it, I was like, how did this happen? What's going on? As I'm reflecting back on it, reading Ephesians 5, this is what I think I realized. I think that our community was failing to walk as children of light. We weren't taking seriously. This is a group project that we actually affect one another. And that was a big part of the reason why Jane gave in to that sin in her life. I'll never forget four months later, sitting down talking to her, and she tells me, Patrick, I'm not a Christian anymore. She wasn't the last one to say that. Or high school small group it fell apart one another but it we are interconnected every single one of us we affect one another but it doesn't have to be that way at Veritas. The opposite can be true if people can go to darkness together they can also go to light and in fact we can expect it because light is so much more powerful than darkness light always defeats the darkness. If as a group together, every single person in this room takes it upon themselves and say, you know what? I'm going to fight for purity. I'm going to fight with my friends to do this. We will all over time grow more and more pure. Uh, Paul gives it in the form of an image in verse 13. He says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. So you've got one light and, and that light it becomes a light. So he's exposing things and making them visible. And he says, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. So he's saying, it's not just that one light by itself, but when it exposes things, the things around it, they start becoming lights too. And, and the light starts spreading more and more and more. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. Here's the picture he's giving. The more we pursue, pursue purity as lights in our lives, the more the light grows, the more the light spreads. Imagine passing one candlelight, to the next person, and then they pass it to the next person, and they pass it to the next person. That process is going to be one of the most transformational and important parts for any single one of us in our battle against sexual immorality. I want to end by going back to that verse 8. You're not darkness. You are light in the Lord. You're light in the Lord, your deepest, deepest down person. You are light in Jesus. That is who you really are. I realize that me talking about this tonight for a lot of you has just unearthed a lot of shame and a lot of guilt and a lot of hurt and a lot of discomfort. But I want you to see this deep down. Your truest self isn't that shame. It isn't that hurt. Your truest self is light. It's in tonight to just end. You see, there is no limit to God's power. I don't want tonight to just end everybody feeling depressed and down and sad about your sexual immorality. Instead, I would far rather us end saying this. You cannot stop the light of Christ. He is the one who shines upon us. And if his light is shining into the darkness, there's nothing anyone can do to ever stop it. If you put a candle on the top of Jesse Hall, one candle, one inch of light, and there's no other light outside, you can see it from Jeff City, one inch of light. You can see it all the way in Jeff City. How much more powerful is the light of Christ in our life? Tonight isn't a night to be ashamed. It's a night to say, God, walk as a child of light. I'm going to change me. Now I want to walk as a child of the light. I trust that you've changed me. I want to walk as a child of light. I'm going to take those steps forward. That's what it's about. So I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we all confess, every single one of us, that in some way, in some capacity, we have been marred by the sexual immorality in our culture. We've been wounded by it. We need your healing. But What we confess is that we've also partaken in it. We've been the ones who have wounded others. We've been the ones who have wounded ourselves, pretended like we were dark. Jesus, we confess all of the ways that we have pretended like we were darkness when we were really light. We confess every act of sexual immorality in our lives, but we turn to you and we ask that your spirit would help us to believe that the deepest, downest, truest part of who we are is that we are light. We are light in you. So Jesus, we ask that you would give us the power to fight sexual immorality. We ask that tonight we would not leave ashamed, but hopeful that your light can change us. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen.